Our reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 37. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord whatever you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Everybody okay? Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we have stacks to get through, so that's my introduction, okay? Um, so if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Um, we're kind of like waist deep into uh, one of, if not the most famous passages in the Bible, uh, which obviously is on the screen, Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, it's been said a couple times, uh, John Stott has said that um, although this is probably the best known teaching of Jesus, uh, it's arguably the least understood and certain, certainly the least obeyed. Uh, so this is why we're doing this series, um, is to, for two reasons, to better understand the scriptures, to better understand what Jesus said uh, in this famous, famous sermon, and also to better put it into practice, to live the way Jesus uh, says he wants us to live. Um, you're going to see that he's going to say it's really, really really important that we, that we do these things. So um, remember what, what is going on. Uh, Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples. Uh, so he's, he's gone up to the mount, he sat down, and his disciples gather there, and he's, he's, he's talking to his followers. And he's, what he's doing is he's, he's telling them what the, he, the kingdom of heaven is like, or, or what the life in the kingdom actually looks like. Um, we've kind of said from the beginning, it, we can kind of say that the sermon is a, it's a silhouette of Jesus himself. He's painting a picture of himself, of his own heart, and thus it should be a picture of his followers as well. Um, it, Lucas kind of made this analogy uh, week one. It, it should almost act like a mirror that we can hold up, and as, as his followers, we look in and we see resemblance of ourselves because we, we resemble Jesus. Um, Jesus has, has gathered his disciples to teach him this sermon, and he's describing what it's like to be a Christian. Um, so keep that in mind as, as we make our way through uh, the series. Be asking yourself this really important question. Um, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, does this describe my life? And um, the, the person that, that Jesus is describing here, does it look like me? Um, there's an old saying that the Christian life is an examined life. Uh, I think it's true, and it's part of our like, sanctification process, this process of, of becoming more like Jesus, of looking more like him. Um, in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, uh, present and future, so you if you're uh, one of them, and he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, so if you want to become more like Jesus, uh, you need to know the truth. You need to be in God's word because it's the truth, which is why we do what we do. And as we're doing this, um, examine our lives, uh, reflect on yourself, and, and ask and depend on the Holy Spirit to, to change your heart. 
Um, so we're doing that as we make our way through. Does this describe me? Um, so just to, uh, as a little bit of a, a recap, in a couple of minutes, uh, Jesus, he began with the Beatitudes, so he's describing the blessed, uh, and he, he goes through those. I'm not going to go through them all again. Um, and then he goes into this section uh, where he says, if you're one of my followers, that you are salt and light, that you're, you're different, that you're distinct in the world, um, which in, in his, his followers' minds, they're, they're Jewish, so if he's talking about being blessed, if he's talking about being distinct in the world, if he's talking about giving glory to God who is in heaven, um, they have this question in their mind of, well, you haven't mentioned the law yet. Because up until that point, all of those things, you did it through obedience to, to the Mosaic law that was set out. So then Jesus goes into the section, uh, verse 17 to 20, where he says, I haven't come to, to do away with the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Uh, and then in, in verse 20, he, he has this, uh, he makes this statement where he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and and that, that statement is what the next, the, really the rest of the book, the rest of this chapter is explaining. So what he meant by that, I think Lucas explained last week, was Jesus isn't calling us to, to exceed the, the Pharisees' righteousness uh, quantitatively to do more, but actually to exceed it in quality. So he's not calling for a wider righteousness. He's actually calling for a deeper one. So the Pharisees were all about this external conformity to the letter of the law, that Jesus is saying, I want you to look on the inside. And he, he accused them of, of just washing the outside of the cup and not the inside. And he's saying, listen, if you're one of my followers, I want the inside to be clean. And, and what's on the outside comes from what's in the inside. It's about the inner person, your mind, your motive, your heart. And, 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 and then he gives these six examples or, or possible applications of what that looks like. Um, so last week we looked at anger and lust. And Jesus said... Like, you think, you, you think you're righteous simply because you haven't murdered someone? Or you think you're righteous just because you haven't committed the, the act of adultery? No, I, I, those, are, those are actually like effects of, of the cause. The, the cause is what's in your heart. It's anger. It's a lustful intent. And even those things make you guilty. I want the inside to be clean, just like the outside. And then he gives these, these, these urgent... Uh, uh, urges them to, to act properly and, and to take action on these things, to, to make reconciliation with people quickly, uh, to, uh, to pluck out your eye, cut off your, your hand metaphorically or, or figuratively, um, take immediate action. And then he does uh, the same in these next uh, sections. It's about the heart. It's about what's inside. And this is what he's describing. Last week wasn't easy, was it? Um, and today's examples aren't any easier. Um, I'll say this, that one of the, the highest privileges uh, of being an elder in, in village is, is, is getting to do this, is getting to, to open God's word and, and to teach it to God's people. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an honor, it's a privilege that none of our elders take lightly, uh, but it's also hard <laughs> at times. Um, because uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is, is living, it's not, it's not just a dead book like any other book, Shakespeare. No, it's, it's alive and it's active. So when we open it, it's, it's active in our lives. And it also says that it's sharp. It says that it's piercing. 
It says that it's discerning. Uh, so when God's word is, is active among us, when it acts, it means our innermost thoughts and our intentions are, are exposed in a way, which is painful at times. But ultimately, trust me, it's good. Um, and maybe last week that was you. Have you thought this like, man, God seemed to just like slice me right open when he was talking about my, my anger or my lust. Happened to me. I was teaching it in South. Sliced me open. And today will be painful for a lot of people in the room. And it's one of the shortest examples, but it's also probably one of the most painful to talk about. And I want to be, I want to be caring and I want to be sensitive because I know so many people sitting here today have been affected by divorce. And a lot of people have the scars left by the tragedy of that separation. Um, some of you are divorced. I know you are. I know you. <laughs> some of you are going through that. Some of your, some of your marriages are, are very painful right now, really hard. And many of you have divorced family members. Maybe your parents are, 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 are divorced. Maybe your siblings are divorced. Um, some of this will be painful for you. Um, but I want you to know, look at me, I want you to know that my aim is not to shame you. My, my aim is not to to bring up painful memories. And my only aim today is to point you towards Jesus. And because he's good, because his words are good, and because the way of his kingdom is good. And I want to faithfully teach what he says in hope, here's our hope, that together we can uh, live like those who are part of his kingdom. And another point I want to make is uh, don't forget the entire point of this section is, is Jesus showing us what this deeper righteousness actually looks like. Um, so Jesus' point throughout the section is, I'm after your heart. Um, I'm concerned with the deeper righteousness of your inner person, of your heart, of your minds, of your motives. That's what I'm speaking to. Not just the external uh, conformity to the letter of the law, um, which means that this sermon is going to be more about your heart, more about that, than it is about the technicalities of, of divorce. And those are important to understand and, and important for us to have that conversation if you want to have that conversation. Um, but if we come to the text today looking for reasons to justify ourselves, looking for reasons to justify divorce, um, then we'll completely miss the point. And, and that's what Jesus is saying, because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing and when, when are we, what's the te technicalities of this? And, but we want to focus, on, on, focus in on the point, which is that deeper righteousness. What does it look like? And that's what this sermon's going to be. And I want to be up front with you, uh, because I know a lot of people have those questions. Um, under what scenarios can I get divorced? Under what scenarios can I get remarried? And I want to have those conversations with you, but we're not going to have time to go through down each of those paths today. Firstly, because we, we don't have enough time, but mainly because I think it misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. And because um, what this passage is doing is, again, showing us his heart on the subject and his standard on the subject. And we're going to try our best to understand that and to run towards that. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not married, like uh, maybe I should have come next week instead of this week, um, don't think that because... Um, you don't want to have to figure out what your views on marriage and divorce are after you're married. You want to figure that out before you get married. Um, so listen up. This is good. That's our goal for today, okay? Is that okay? Okay. Um, 
Let's pray. I'm going to pray again. Uh, Father, you're good. Uh, You're so good to us. You're patient with us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for giving us your spirit to guide us, to teach us, to comfort us. I pray that you do that this morning. I pray specifically for the hearts of people who are wounded by this subject. I pray that they would see you. Um, our, our, our <laughs> we so often just want to look on the inside of us uh, and stop there, but help us to see you, Lord. Help us to lift our eyes like the Psalms of Atensei, to fix our eyes on you because you're good. Um, I pray you do that uh, through me today, God. I pray that you would be uh, lifted up, that you would be glorified, not me. I pray that you would capture people's attentions today, not me. Um, this is all for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So verse 31, uh, he gives, he's into our third example of this deeper righteousness. And remember, each one has these kind of three points of, he says, um, the, the, kind of like the Torah statement, you have heard it said. And then he says, but I say to you. So he gives the Torah statement, he gives the true intention of it, and then he gives this practical application. Um, Remember that Jesus isn't offering this antithetical view to the law. He's not coming to to abolish the law or change it or offer a new one. He's saying, you haven't properly understood it. I'm offering an antithetical view to to the way that the teachers were were understanding and teaching the law. Um, So verse 31, it says, it was also said, um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, Scott McKnight says this. He says that uh, divorce confuses the church today because marriage confuses. And marriage confuses the church today because love confuses. Um, and it's, it's right, isn't it? So often love is defined by our culture. Um, we understand love through the lens of our culture's uh, view of romance. Uh, of personal fulfillment, of self-expansion. Uh, we understand love through, through what we're told through stories that the world is telling, and um, through films and books and TV. Um, some, some great stories, uh, some, some really beautiful stories. Uh, so we understand like, love is like Ross and Rachel, right? That's, that, that's a story of, of, of love, Romeo and Juliet. Um, but, but I didn't just make uh, friends and Shakespeare that kind of equal. Just, I just heard it in my head. Um, but remember, uh, remember this line that Jesus is, keeps repeating, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, or to put it another way, this is the heart of the culture, uh, this is what, what the culture or the world is teaching you, but I'm letting you know that, that new kingdom citizens are called to a radical different standard of holiness. And so, so we want to be taught what marriage is, uh, not by our culture, but by God. Um, so here, and here's a few, a few points or a few things to remember uh, about what the Bible teaches about uh, what marriage is. So it's important to understand what marriage is before you uh, start to understand uh, divorce. Uh, so firstly, uh, we need to understand that, that man did not invent marriage. God did. So, so uh, all the way back in Genesis, uh, in the story of creation, uh, we see that God creates humans and, and he creates them in his image and he creates them male and female. 
Um, and then he gives them this mandate, uh, both male and female. He, he blesses them, and he gives them this job to, to govern the world uh, on his behalf, to be this kind of royal priesthood on his behalf. And, and one of the parts of that mandate is to fill it, to multiply it, to, to kind of procreate. And, and, and he didn't just leave it at that. Um, he actually made a specific way for us to, to carry out this part of the mandate. Uh, and we see that he creates marriage. So in chapter 2, chapter 2 is really just zooms in on that last day of creation where he creates humanity and gives us more detail. And what we see in chapter 2 is, is him giving Eve as a suitable companion for Adam. And, and in, in verse 24 of chapter 2, you see that God creates marriage. Uh, and it says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, so marriage wasn't a clever idea uh, of us. Um, it's not what kind of happened naturally as we started to fall in love. Um, God created it. And he instituted it as part of his creation plan. And, and, and he, he describes in this verse what happens uh, in marriage when a man and woman uh, come together to get married. He said man would leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Um, and, and that word for hold fast, uh, it means to be joined to, to cleave to, uh, to, to stick to, um, or to, to cement to. So I, I'm, not a, I'm not a builder. I don't know much about welding, but my basic knowledge is you have two pieces of metal, you weld, weld them together, and now you have one piece of metal. And, and, and this is what this is saying, that, that man should be welded to, should be cleaved to his wife, and they shall become one rather than two. Uh, so the Lord makes this unbreakable physical and emotional and, and spiritual bond between two people until they are one. Uh, and so um, God created that way back in the beginning when he invented marriage. And he says, this is what it is. Um, here's the most amazing thing about God's view on marriage, though. It's, it's what it's meant to represent, what it's meant to be a picture of. Uh, and he tells us uh, the whole purpose for marriage is actually this. And why he created it in the first place. And Ephesians 5, 31, Paul says, he gives us the reason. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis here. And then in verse 32, he gives us, he says what it means. He says, this is why God created marriage in the first place. In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, or the, or the meaning of marriage has, has sort of been hidden until now, but I'm going to tell you what it's all about. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, that marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says that, that what marriage is a picture of, what marriage is meant to represent, uh, um, because he, 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 wanted to, he, he wanted your marriage to be a picture for the world of Christ's love for his bride, the church. That's what marriage is meant to, meant to be. So if you're married today, um, the, the day you get married and you stand in front of your friends and, and the family and, and the minister and, and you go through those wedding vows. And so for me, as I take Jenny uh, to be my wife, uh, to have and to hold uh, from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death to us part. Beautiful, beautiful words. And then when you walk back down, down the aisle and everyone is cheering and crying, it's this beautiful moment, 
What the scriptures say is, is the primary thing that happened in that moment it was not primarily for companionship. It was not primarily for sex. It was not primarily so that you can start a family. It's not primarily so that you can express your ultimate love for each other. All those things are, are beautiful part of marriage. And they're, they're all certainly part of the meaning and the purpose of marriage. There's a whole entire book about that, Song of Songs. But the Bible teaches us that all those things are secondary. And the primary thing is that when you, became, when you got married, you became a physical, living, uh, a physical picture to the world of Jesus' relationship to his bride, the church. Marriage is ultimately a, a, a picture of God's love for us. And, and so the question, if marriage is, a, is, is meant to be a picture of God's love for us, then, then the question is, what is God's love for us like? What is it meant to be a picture of? And, and there's a lot of things that we can say about that. Um, But there's one main thing that I think we need to understand in order to help us get our minds around what Jesus is trying to say in Matthew 5, and it's this. Uh, The main thing we see in the Bible about God's love for his people, about Jesus' love for his church, about what your marriages represent, is that Jesus' love for his bride is never-ending. And one of my favorite passages is, is Romans 8. It's exactly what Paul says. He says, For I'm, I'm sure that, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an amazing passage. It's, such, it's the best news. That Christ's love for you, his bride, is absolutely unbreakable. There's absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the Bible teaches us that it's impossible to break. It's impossible to sever. It's impossible to end God's relationship that he has with you in Jesus. And, and, it's, and Paul says that this is what our marriage is meant to represent. This is what this is meant to be a picture of. This is what you're stepping into when you get married. Does that help make more sense of God's view on the, top, on the topic of marriage? And I think it, makes, it helps make sense of, of Malachi 2.16 that says that God hates divorce. So what marriage was ultimately meant to be a picture of, this unbreakable, never-ending love of God to us through Jesus, when we break that up, we're breaking up something that God created to represent the unbreakable. And God says, I hate that. Turn over to Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus teaching uh, on the subject in, in Matthew 5, and the Sermon on the Mount is quite short, isn't it? Two verses. Um, and, and it's good because it gives us the heart of the, of, the, um, of the issue. But in Matthew 19, Jesus extrapolates a bit. Um, in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees approach him, and, and they ask Jesus the question on divorce, which is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And what they're, what they're trying to do is trap Jesus, because they did this to John the Baptist, and, and, and it got him killed. And if it gets Jesus killed, then that's great in their, in their mind. 
Um, but it's not, that's really not the point. Um, what they ask him is, is it lawful, lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus responds in verse 4. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis again, same verse. And then he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that last sentence is so important for us. To, to better understand biblical marriage, Jesus' view. So Jesus is saying this. When you got married, you didn't join you together. When you, when you got married, like the, the minister didn't join you together. When you got married, God joined you together. Jesus is saying that, 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 that marriage is not something that you and your spouse accomplished. It's actually a supernatural event that God himself is the author of. You didn't join anything together. God did. And Jesus is saying that what God joins together, you don't break it apart. And look at their response in verse 7, because this is really important. Uh, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? They're saying, what do you mean what God joined together let no one break apart? Because what Moses said was all we need to do is give, give her a certificate of divorce. And as long as we do that, we're okay, that, that, that no law broken. And Jesus responds, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So, so we're told that God hates divorce. He's always hated it because, it because it spoils, because it misrepresents this picture of his unbreakable love for his people. And, but we see back in the Old Testament that, that God gives this concession. He doesn't give a, a command, but a concession because, like Jesus said, of the hardness of their hearts. And this is important to understand, that, that, it, that he gave a concession it's because it's not like God changed his mind. And you know what? I actually, what I said in the beginning, forget about that. Here, here's an easy way to, 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 to get out of your marriages. He, he never gives his people his blessing on divorce. But Jesus says it's because of your hardness of hearts that, that Moses allowed you to divorce. You see how they're, they, they ever so uh, sneakily uh, get the wording wrong? Well, Moses commanded us. Jesus is like, ah. Moses allowed you because of the hardness of your hearts. And the word is, uh, I found this interesting, the word is sclerocardia, uh, literally sclerosis of the heart. He says your hearts have a sickness. And sclerosis is, is, this, is this disease where, the, where, where your normal tissue starts to harden. And he says that's like what's in your heart. It's because of the hardness of your hearts, because of the, the wickedness that you're infected with. Because of their hardness towards God's word, because of their hardness towards each other, that God in his mercy and his grace gave them this concession to give a certificate of divorce. It's not how I want it to be. I hate it. But your hearts are so hard. And do you see how even in, in Matthew 19, Jesus is making the same argument that he's making in these six examples in the Sermon on the Mount? That there's a matter of the heart that underlies the, the mere outward instruction. The issue at hand is your heart. 
Jesus always comes back to that. And Jesus always goes back to the beginning. He said, God never intended marital union to be broken, but has allowed it because of your hardness in your heart. You see, God's understanding of, uh, our understanding of, of God's ethical commands requires thinking about the inner person. We're meant to understand this section the same way as the others by focusing in on the heart. And, and I want to point out um, a couple things here. Um, this, this certificate of concession, this, uh, this mosaic uh, um, concession that's given, uh, they're talking about is in Deuteronomy 24, which is a, a, a weird passage. Go, go read it sometime. Um, but the, pa- the point of the passage, the point of this concession is actually for the protection of the women in the ancient Jewish world. Um, so it's, it, it says basically this. It says that if a man uh, finds his wife unfaithful, um, then he's to write her a certificate of divorce before sending her out. And then if she goes on and becomes someone else's wife, which she probably would, because back then it'd be extremely difficult, maybe impossible for a divorced woman to, to, to support her family. Um, if she goes on and, and marries someone again, and then that person divorces her, or if that guy dies, then, this, uh, then Moses prohibits that first man from coming and marrying her again. It's weird, isn't it? But the point of it is actually to protect the women because what was happening was, was men could leave their wives for any reason. I'm just going to walk out on my family and my kids, my wife, and they could leave for years if they wanted to. And if in the meantime, his wife, who has no idea where he is, if he's going to come back, if she remarries again, and then the first husband returns, and it's, it's actually the first husband who has the rights to all the property it's, it's the first person who has the rights to all her children. And, and if you have older sons, they're actually a financial asset in the, in the ancient world. Plus, it'd be the, the first husband who has the rights to, to the dowry given by the second husband to the wife. So what you see is that it would actually be quite advantageous for a man to leave for a while on purpose. Hope his wife remarries. Hope she has more kids. Hope they, ha- they get more property. And then him come back and return and say, ah, this stuff's mine. I'm gonna have, now I have kids that are old enough to work the field. Now I have property back. Now I have the dowry that she received from the second husband. Second guy's in a lot better position, isn't he? So, so the point of Deuteronomy 24 actually is a huge deterrent to divorce and remarried, remarriage. So what the certificate of divorcement uh, did was allow the, the woman to remarry and prevented the first husband from coming back and taking financial advantage of her. It's meant to protect the women in the ancient culture from what? The hardness of hearts. But what happened over time was this permission they were given turned into permissiveness. John Stott talks about this. Um, permission turning into permissiveness. So what you have then is husbands uh, divorcing wives for any reason. And there's one liberal rabbi who taught that you could divorce your wife if she burned your breakfast or if, or if you found her less attractive. Make sure you give her that certificate though. Permission turned into permissiveness. Again, you see their, their relaxing of the law just like they did with anger and lust to make it achievable. So what mattered most to them was not the grounds for divorce, but their certificate. They're so, like the, the bigger, the bigger, what I don't want to commit here is adultery. 
So I'm going to make sure you get the certificate. It's just a slippery way to, to achieve the law. And this is where Jesus steps in, and he, and he screeches the discussion to a halt. And he points them back to God's original intent, and he exposes their hearts. Again, do you see how God has always been about people's hearts? It's always his point. It's always it's the point of the law. He says, I want your hearts to be pure. I want what's inside to be clean, not just the outside. Um, so just to recap, um, God's view of marriage is that it's intimate and that it's permanent. Um, the two shall be cleaved together, they be joined together, it's intimate. And then what God joins together, let no one break it apart. Secondly, God's purpose of marriage is that it's a picture to the world, it's supposed to represent to the world his unbreakable love for his people, Jesus' unbreakable love for his bride, the church. Therefore, God hates divorce. Anytime Jesus is asked about divorce, he always goes back to Genesis, always that original intent. It's meant to be intimate. It's meant to be permanent. And it's meant to be a picture of my love for you. That's God's heart on the, on the subject. We want to understand it. And we want to run towards it as his disciples. We also see that it's because of the hardness of hearts, he gives a concession for divorce. It breaks his heart. He hates it. It's not his original intent, but because of our hearts are hard, and because of his mercy and his grace, he allows it in certain situations. And like I said, we're not going to go down all the roads of, uh, of, of, of those situations. If you have questions on that, please come. We want to be open and we want to, we want to have these conversations. But four kind of things that our elders kind of have, have understood from the scriptures of what, what can end a divorce, or what can end a marriage is death, obvious one, sexual sin, like Jesus says, and then you see Paul extrapolates a bit more on desertion and, and abuse. We see that the issues are complex. The issues are complicated. So we're dealing with real people with real situations. So understanding and applying biblical wisdom isn't always easy. But we want to understand that, that God never commands it. He, 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 he sometimes permits it because we live in a sin-cursed world and our hearts are hard. Um, hands up, literally hands up if you can't wait for the new creation. Come on. Like, I can't wait to live in a world that has no sin. I can't wait to live in a place where we have no hardness in our hearts. What's that going to be like? I can't wait to live in a place with, with no tears and pain. I can't wait to live in a place with no divorce. But here we are in the meantime. Um, Tom made me aware of, the, of this stat. It's heartbreaking. Um, did you know that one in four women in our country have been victims of domestic abuse in their lifetime. 25%. And so I want to say, in light of all the rest of all that, that if that's you, come talk to us. Come let us help you. Don't suffer alone. Let us walk through whatever you're going through. And here's my one promise, is that we're going to point you and we're going to point your boneheaded husband to Jesus. And whatever that looks like, sometimes it might be 
a marriage ending. Might end up with someone going to prison. <laughs> We're going to point you to Jesus. We're going to hope that there's reconciliation. We're going to hope that that picture stays united. But it's all about hearts. It's all about Jesus. I promise you that's what we're going to do. Because God hates evil. And we stand against that. Um, Husbands, if your wife is cheating on you, wives, if your husband is cheating on you, come on. Come talk to us. Let us walk through this in community like we're meant to. Let us walk with you and let us walk, work towards a greater righteousness of the heart like Jesus wants us to. We're going to ask the difficult questions. What does it look like to have the heart of Jesus? What does it look like to live with a righteousness that's deeper than that of the Pharisees? Uh, we're not done with marriage. We're going, to, we're going to wrap it all up at the end, but let's look at verse 33. Look at oaths. I think Jesus, in his entire uh, point in this section, he's describing these, the deeper righteousness of the heart. He's describing the hearts of his followers. And it's this. As people of the kingdom of heaven, our words needs, needs to match our actions. And here's our culture. We're always looking for ways to get off the hook, aren't we? And Jesus says, people in my kingdom, my kingdom is one of honesty. My kingdom is one of fidelity. It's a kingdom where, where every person in the kingdom is faithful, just like Jesus is faithful. They, they look like him, remember. Remember the silhouette. They look like him, and he is faithful, and we are faithful. Um, so the, the last section, uh, we see God calling us to fidelity in our marriages. Be faithful to your spouse, just like Jesus is faithful to his spouse, the church. And the next section, we see him calling uh, us to faithfulness in our words. Uh, John Stott writes, If the rabbis tended to be permissive in their attitude to divorce, they were also permissive in their teaching about oaths. So again, we see what they were doing is they were relaxing the Old Testament scripture to make it easier to obey. And again, they're, they're, they're concerned with this external obedience to the law, not what's on the inside. Uh, so verse 33, again, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you, have, what you have sworn. He's saying, in other words, you shall not break your vows that you make. You're gonna, you should fulfill whatever vow you've made to the Lord. And this isn't... A, this isn't really an accurate quotation of any one Old Testament uh, law of Moses. It's more of a summary of several Old Testament laws which require people uh, who make vows to keep them. Um, so you have, um, y- your actions need to match your words. Again, if you make a vow, you keep the vow. And, and, and the vows in question here are oaths in which the speaker calls upon God to witness his vow and then to punish him if he breaks it. So Moses he often emphasizes uh, the evil of swearing falsely uh, and the duty of performing uh, to the Lord what you owe, what you vow. And so here's a few examples of, of these passages. Uh, the first, the most famous one is that third commandment in Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, a lot of times we misunderstand what that means. Um, but the, the second two 
uh, really kind of help us uh, understand what it means. So Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. And then uh, uh, the next one, Deuteronomy, I think chapter 23, uh, verse 21 and 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. Verse 23, you shall be careful to do what is passed from your lips. I love how he writes that. You should be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Um, so the second commandment, it's, it's not so much about spouting divine titles when using profanity, although I wouldn't recommend that. Um, it's instead a commandment against using God's name in vain. Uh, against making an oath or a vow of any sort while invoking God if you're not able to keep that vow. And so what does in vain mean? Uh, In vain means empty or useless or producing no results or or having no likelihood of fulfilling it. And the Bible says don't use God's name in that way. And and, and that's what the Pharisees were doing again. Uh, Remember, they're relaxing the law in, in, in order to make it achievable And what they were doing is they were shifting people's attention away from the vow itself and making it about keeping a certain formula when making the vow. So what they argued uh, was the law was prohibiting not taking the name of the Lord in vain, emptily, is that a word? Not keeping the name of the Lord without, with no intention of fulfilling it. They made it about taking the name of the Lord in vain. So uh, John Stott says that false swearing, they concluded, was, was about profanity rather than perjury. It was about uh, a profane use of the divine name rather than a dishonest pledging of one's word. And, and this is how they relaxed the law to make it attainable. What they did was they developed these elaborate rules and formulas for taking vows. So there were certain formulas which were permissible, and, and it was only the formulas which which included the divine name that made that vow binding. If it didn't include the divine name, well, then you didn't need to worry about keeping that one so much. It's about the formula that you make the vow. They've made it about the formula rather than the intent. Does that make sense? And Jesus is obviously saying to his followers, listen, you have to have a much deeper righteousness than this to be in my kingdom. You have heard it said Verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black, white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus steps in and he says, your formulas are irrelevant. They don't matter. They don't make any sense. This idea of formulas that include God's name and those that don't, it doesn't make any sense. And he says that, he says, because whatever you say, wherever you say it, it's always before the Lord. So it, it doesn't matter if your vow includes the divine name or not. Whatever comes out of your lips, God hears it and he will hold you accountable to it. Why? Jesus says, because the whole world is his. And he, he says, however hard you try not to include him, you can't avoid some reference to God. Because if you vow by heaven, well, that's God's throne. You're including him. If you vow by earth, that's his footstool. You're including him. If you vow by, by Jerusalem, that's his city. You're including him. 
If you vow by your own head, he made you in his image. You're including him. And the, pre- the precise wording or the formula of your vows is irrelevant. It was never the point of the law. What's the point of the law always? Your heart. He says a certain formula doesn't add any importance to a vow. A vow's binding irrespective of its formula. Which means that the real implication of the law, what Jesus is calling us to, is to keep our, is to keep our promises, to be people of our word, that our words match our actions. And, and in that way, vows become unnecessary. Which is why Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Obedience to the law has always been about the heart. Do you see this uh, pattern? One big question standing on people's minds might be this. Is Jesus really forbidding all oaths, all vow-taking? It sounds like he has in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. And we just spent a good chunk of time in marriage. Like, what about those vows? He said, those words are beautiful. Um. Jonathan Pennington, uh, he writes this because he's smarter than me. Um, He says, as with the other exegeses, these other examples, Jesus is not overturning or abolishing the the original command. He's not opposed to oath or vow-taking, as he would certainly affirm the importance of following through with integrity on on what one vows to do. Instead, he's using hyperbolic or poetic speech, just like he did in the lust section. Pluck out your, your, your hand, cut off your your." Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. He's not, again, his point is not self-maiming. He's using hyperbolic or poetic speech. Jesus is speaking to the heart issue of trying to get out of fulfilling your vows by somatic and technical arguments about the supposed difference between objects upon which one based their vow. He says if one is going to do this, he or she should just not make any vows at all. With stronger and persuasive images, Jesus, Jesus shows that this way of practicing vows is not the way of being in his kingdom. This is not a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Vows can be beautiful. And I, I can't think of any more meaningful words that have ever come out of my mouth than my wedding vows. Anything I take more serious. God himself makes vows to his people throughout Scripture. The point, is, the point Jesus is making, though, is I want what's in your hearts to match what's coming out of your mouth. We don't use scaling words. If I, if I swear by this, then I'm really, I really mean what I say. No, he says everything that comes out of our mouths is what we mean. And what, is, what does this application actually look like in our lives? What does it practically look like in, in our everyday lives? A.M. Hunter puts it this way, oaths arise because men are so often liars. Isn't that true? Like swearing or oath-taking is a really pathetic confession to our own dishonesty. The only reason we do it is that we know our simple word is not likely to be trusted. Why do you have to swear on this? Like, that means the rest of what you say isn't trustworthy? Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, everything my disciples say is trustworthy. It's the culture we live in, isn't it? Like words mean very little. But Jesus is calling us to a deeper righteousness where our words match 
our hearts. Maybe it's simple stuff. Um, I'm guilty of this one. I'm pretty introverted. And if, if you don't know me and you invite me to a party where I probably don't know anyone else, I'm not going to want to go. But I might say, oh, maybe. I have no intention of going to your party. <laughs> but Jesus is calling for my response to, be, to match what's in my heart. Just say yes or just say no. Or just be honest. Like, that sounds terrifying. I don't want to go. <laughs> Maybe your temptation is to exaggerate. Any exaggerators in the room? What exaggeration does is it devalues human language. It devalues human promises. Jesus says, simply say yes or simply say no. Church, do you have fidelity in your words? Jesus says those in his, in his kingdom do. His people have integrity in their speech. They have wholeness. They have shalom in their actions and their intentions. He says this is the way of the kingdom. And just to wrap up, uh, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a silhouette of Jesus. It's a picture of him. It's a picture of his heart. And thus, it should be a picture of ours as well. Because followers of Jesus become like Jesus. So ultimately, we must be faithful and, and, and truthful in our commitments, in our words, in our relationships, because God himself is faithful to his. And here's the beauty of the gospel in the text. And if you take one thing away from today, uh, let it be this, that, that Jesus is our example and our redeemer in both of these texts. So, so Jesus, Jesus shows us that God will never leave us. And I, I made that point already, that, that our marriages are meant to be a picture of that, it's meant to be a picture of that unbreakable love for us, his bride. And, 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 and even because of our hardness of hearts, he gave us that concession. But we see in the gospel that Jesus never takes that concession. Even though he has every right to, he never leaves us. And go read the, the book of Hosea sometime. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And it's this beautiful story where, where God calls this guy, Hosea, to go and marry a prostitute. And, and, and he says, I want you to go after this woman, this prostitute, and I want you to marry her. But Hosea, he, he obeys God, and he marries her. And, but instead of, of her being faithful to him, she is unfaithful. She goes and she sleeps with a bunch of other guys. And she commits adultery after adultery after adultery, even to the point where she leaves him and she goes and, 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 and lives with another man and is sleeping with him. So she cheats on Hosea again and again and again. She leaves him, moves in with the other guy. And even though he has every right to divorce her, God tells Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go after her. I want you to pursue her, and I want you to win her back. I know she's cheated on you a bunch of times. I know she's living with another guy right now, but I want you to pursue her, and I want you to win her back. And this is the story of the gospel. Because Hosea represents Jesus, which means that the prostitute who keeps running away and cheating on him represents us. 
You see, the book of Hosea is a story of God's never-ending pursuit of his adulterous prostitute bride. It's a beautiful story about how God never leaves us. He never gives up on us. He never divorces us. It's a story about how God keeps, his, keeps true to his word. He makes a covenant and he keeps it. The book of Hosea, he doesn't leave. Even though he could, even though she deserves to be left, he never stops pursuing her. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. I don't know about you, but I've cheated on Jesus a thousand times with a thousand different lovers. But he's never left me. He's never forsaken me. He will never break his covenant with me. And the proof of that is Jesus' example on the cross. The cross is the proof of that. His love for us, his, his promise to us, sent him to the cross, sent him to take our punishment. You know, in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to take that punishment. Even though I don't deserve it, even though you do, I'm going to take it. Why? Because I love you. Because I want to redeem you. Because I want to give you access to the kingdom. Church, never forget that. Never stop talking about that. Don't let it stop both breaking your heart and filling it with joy. And live in response to it. We're called to live with a deeper righteousness because it's the way of the kingdom. Don't be tempted to, to turn inward in this. I gotta do harder. I gotta try harder. No, we're faithful because Jesus is faithful. We're faithful because he sent his spirit to come to write his hearts on our law, on, on, to write his law on our hearts, to help us to walk in his statutes. We depend not on ourselves to do this, we depend on Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Uh, Jesus, we owe everything to you. And we just want to uh, confess again that, that our hearts are hard. That there's nothing in us that can... That can uh, make our way uh, closer to you. There's nothing in us that can, that can please you. It's by your grace that we've been saved. It's by what you've done on the cross. It's by your blood being shed that we're able to come near, that you make us, you, you turn us from, from, from uh, strangers, from aliens, from enemies of God into his family. You've made a family with brothers and sisters Jesus, you're so good to us. You're so faithful to us. We turn our back on you over and over, but over and over again, you, you love us. We thank you for, for placing your righteousness on us in a way that, that we can never be uh, taken away from that relationship with God. We, we thank you that, that your love for us is unbreaking. We thank you that your love for us is, is never changing. And the reason we can, we can say thank you in that is because we are in Christ Jesus.
We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We're a, a room full of people who have messed up. But again, we turn to the cross over and over again. We thank you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.